This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome to the conversation uh, where we're gonna have a conversation about a controversial topic. Uh, I know, color you surprised. Uh, uh, but this one is quite touchy, especially with parents. Uh, but uh, let's let's do it. Let's have that conversation. Justine Ang Fonte joins us. She's an intersectional health educator, and recently uh, she ran into some issues uh, on this front. Justine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jank. All right. So, what's your stance on talking to your kids about online porn, and and what did that lead to uh, for you? My stance is that the first conversation on sex should not be about online porn with your child. We need to be talking about sexuality from the womb to the tomb so that when they are inevitably exposed to pornography, it is a much easier conversation because they've already understood about body agency, about their body parts, about the diversity of bodies being completely normal and really being able to be literate when they are exposed to porn as something that is meant to be a fantasy but not an instruction manual on sex. Mm -hmm. And how did that arise in controversy? Um, there were a couple parents who were very upset that their juniors, their 11th graders were learning about pornography literacy in a school setting under a Zoom assembly this past spring because they felt it wasn't appropriate for an academic setting. They and reported that to the New York Post, and then that led to a whole onslaught of other um, uh, interpretations of what I had done. Yeah, and so in that context, what was your role? My role was to come into the school and inform them of the different ways that pornography that is mainstream and available so easily for young people is something that can impact your body image. The lack of understanding on intimacy and relationships, the understanding behind consent not being modeled for you. And so I came in to do this 90 minute presentation with a Q&A, students were extremely engaged asking a ton of questions. It was very clear by their questions that this was a very pertinent topic to their lives and their peers' lives. But as a result of it being a Zoom assembly, parents were, I guess, eavesdropping into the class that day and had misinterpreted or taken out of context some of the topics that came up and reported it in a way that I'm not used to, which is the press, as opposed to going to the teacher or the administrators that actually hired me to speak about this very topic. Right, and you mentioned 11th grade, was it for a specific class? Was it for the whole school or was it just for 11th grade? It was just an 11th grade assembly of usually around 16, 17 year olds and there are about 120 of them. So it's typical for schools to bring in assembly speakers and I just happened to be the one on the lineup for the spring. And so were the parents concerned we should not talk about porn at all in the context of school? Was that the issue? It was unclear. 
Um, the way that it was depicted in the New York Post is that in general, pornography should not be something discussed at all in an academic setting. And the parents felt that they were not informed of this speaking engagement occurring. It is, that is very uncommon for parents to not know guest speakers. So I had trusted the psychologist who had hired me to actually relate to parents. And I was told that they were informed of this because they asked for my bio and a blurb to be sent in the parent newsletter. So it was quite shocking to hear differently when I was reading it in the article. Okay, so now let's clarify to the audience, New York Post is trash. So whatever they wrote is irrelevant. Because they're trying to smear anyone that they write about that isn't to the right of Attila the Hunt. And so if you're having a sensible conversation, it is very likely that you will be smeared in the New York Post over it. It's owned by Rupert Murdoch, who's one of the worst people we've had the misfortune of having on this planet. It is what it is. Good people and bad people get born, they live. It is what, you know, and unfortunately also control media companies. Um, and by the way, just this is a fun little fact, New York Post loses, last we heard in the public, $50 million a year, every year. But Murdoch keeps it around for propaganda purposes. So now that we've clarified all of that, um, let's talk about whether you should teach your kids uh, about sex overall and as it relates to what they might see online. Now, Justine, I've got a daughter in third grade and a son in sixth grade. And I know from my experience that they're too young for it. Although my son is getting real close to the age where he's not gonna be too young for it any second now, right? But 11th grade, are they joking? Is it, I mean, are they serious or just like, now I'm not talking about the New York Post, I get it. They're driving a political agenda. Their political agenda is, oh my God, Democrats talk about sex with children, right? I get that part, right? But for the for the parents, do they really think that their 11, like their their kids in 11th grade that are 16 and 17 have not seen online porn? Is there one person left on planet Earth that believes that? I think the parents have to realize that their kids are exposed to online porn. I think it's that the parents aren't ready to accept that because it means that they feel responsible for having to maybe have that conversation for the first time. And that's daunting. If you haven't had the sex talk yet, then yeah, having a talk about mainstream porn is gonna be extremely difficult. So I can imagine that the anxiety was really in part on being in a pandemic and you know it being already several months into it and then hearing things coming out of your child's laptop that are things you probably were never taught or you're dealing with your own sexual trauma that you haven't resolved or healed from yet and so it you know feeling like you now have to have conversations with your own child about this can make it feel really scary for parents i'm just surprised by their method of projection um, in terms of that anxiety, which was by going to the New York Post. No, that one I'm not surprised either. I guarantee you that 90% of them, if not 100% of them, were right wingers who were looking to cry because that's their favorite hobby in the world. They love to cry. So just give them any reason, and they'll, go, oh, New York Post, a liberal traumatized me with truth. Um, so, but okay, now let's have a try to have an adult conversation, even though I. Uh, Make fun of Republicans and uh, uh, mock them, but um, okay. So 
how are you supposed to talk to your kids about it? Because it is super uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, and we, us parents would like to know when, we, when, it, when it's the right time. Absolutely. Well, as I said earlier, you want to be talking about sexuality topics throughout the lifespan and not waiting until there's a Me Too story or in the context of a mainstream porn walk in in your child's bedroom. But you want them to already be comfortable about these things. So, assuming you have already done that, when the time comes to talk about specifically online porn and sexually explicit media, which is Really smart to do it around sixth grade, seventh grade. So for prepping you, Jank, and your child, it's important to let them know it's totally normal to be curious about your body, especially that your body's going through puberty now. You want to make sure it's healthy. Knowing if it's healthy or not and what it can do is not something you want to learn from mainstream porn. So if you're Googling something about your body, can't really rely on the resources that might pop up because of how predatory a lot of the mainstream porn aspects of the industry are. But also it's not necessarily gonna be medically accurate and that's definitely what they want. They want the assurance that their bodies are normal and that these changes are supposed to happen. When it comes to talking about relationships, you're not gonna learn intimacy through mainstream pornography. So it's about you know talking about healthy relationships and are these things in service of your safety, fulfillment and pleasure. Those are the three main words that I bring over and over in all of my classes so that they can really exercise levels of scrutiny at determining if the relationships that are in are healthy for them. And then letting them know that you know if you're not gonna learn physics by watching the Transformers, you definitely don't wanna learn sex by watching porn either. And so we have to really be literate about what we're exposed to is meant to be a fantasy or an entertainment industry and not an education industry. Yeah, see that last word you use, fantasy. That that's really what I wanted to focus on. Look, because some parts of this are easy. I already kind of, I didn't talk about it in the context of sex, but I talked about it in the context of don't don't believe anything you see online without double checking, unless it's of course it's Young Turks, then it's fine. But <laughs> but all kidding aside, I mentioned earlier on on Monday's program. To our audience, even if you're watching us at TYT, double check, double check everything, right? And so, you know, my son was watching some fun conspiracy theory stuff about the pyramids or stuff, and I'm like, you know, that's not real, right? You know, stuff online is not necessarily real. And I'm also amused that you know you use the word mainstream pornography. I'm sure you do it, and it's legit, etc. But like, mainstream porn ain't mainstream. <laughs> like it's like that's the one thing. Where the mainstream is not overly healthy and safe and all that stuff, right? And so, I mean, when you go off mainstream, whatever the hell off mainstream is, that really bad, okay? So, but, but on the other hand, porn is porn, right? But my my question is, is it? Do you talk to them about, hey, that's not good or that's not real sex, or do you bifurcate and say that that's fantasy, but not real? You see what I'm so- saying? Yeah, absolutely. With the juniors that I was speaking to, the 11th graders, I was talking to them about how you can really explore a lot of your body and understand your sexuality more through what you may be exposed to. And there's a you know body diversity that you can now access in ways that we you know previous generations were not able to. But what's important to really recognize is most of porn, and when I say mainstream, I'm talking about not 
common, I'm talking about the easily accessible free porn um, that young people are usually accessing. Um, and that porn is really telling us about messages on race and how it's we're racialized, exotified and fetishized, especially for people of color um, and how white doesn't have its own genre. It's telling you that you don't need to know about how the other person is feeling in an intimately physical relationship. Um, it's not telling you how to ex exercise and understand consent. It's not showing you safer sex practices. So a lot of the things that are being modeled for you aren't things you want to apply in your real life. But by increasing your exposure to mainstream porn visuals, you may start normalizing these things and thinking that this is what's expected of you and expected of people that you're intimate with. Yeah, look, we're out of time, but it's a really interesting topic because it isn't just about sex, it's also about culture. And so you're right, and I had not quite thought of it that way before that the fetishes create a way of thinking about certain races and people that is absurd and yeah. and and gets reinforced subconsciously through porn. I mean, anyway. So, fascinating topic. Thank you for having a thoughtful conversation about it, as opposed to what apparently went on in the New York Post. Justine Hang Fonte, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jank. All right, back on the conversation. Now we're going to turn to Michael Lee, the Director of Information Security at the Intercept. Fascinating phenomenon about people making tons of money off of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. You knew as soon as the right wing started talking about it that the scammers were going to rush in. So now we've got the information on that. Micah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right, so uh, let's take ivermectin because that's uh, hotter in the news recently. Uh, so how, how do our uh, good uh, folks in the grifting community uh, take advantage of right wingers believing that uh, uh, medicine that's meant to address tapeworm has something to do with coronavirus? So um, the first thing they do is they spread a lot of misinformation claiming that this is a miracle cure. And there have been a bunch of you know research into it. And so far the data says it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't help, like according to all of the health authorities. So it's not actually a miracle cure, but, they, but a lot of people like truly deeply believe this. So that's the first thing they do. Then they get people to go to their website. And on their homepage, they have a big get medication button and they get people to click that button. It brings them over to their partner's website, their telehealth partner called Encore Telemedicine. And that website, they click a button to talk to a doctor and they fill out an intake form. They pay $90 and then they get a phone call and the doctor prescribes them ivermectin. Okay. so. I assume the doctor gets a cut, right? Yeah, I mean, the doctor must get a cut. Like, I tried to um, dig into exactly who gets the money, and no one, and they wouldn't answer these questions really. Um, but uh, Encore is the one that's charging people's credit cards, and uh, and yeah, the doctors. There's some like there's like a network of doctors. I don't know exactly how many of them there are, and they're not all doctors. Some of them are like nurse practitioners. Um, but there's a network of these people who are allowed to write prescriptions that uh, America's frontline doctors says that they uh, train. And yeah, they, they're the ones doing the consultations. They probably get a cut, Encore probably gets a cut. 
And then the other big party here is um, RavQ, the uh, the pharmacy that that has been filling almost all of this. Okay, and so uh, how much money are we talking about here overall? So they're charging ninety bucks a pop. Uh, I bet it adds up. Is there yeah. a big grand number? <laughs> so the two companies were hacked. Cadence Health, which is a um, a company that was basically doing the telemedicine platform for Encore. It's a little confusing, but basically we have two months of data from Cadence Health. So we don't actually know the total amount of money that they've made by selling these $90 consultations. We know the amount of money they made over a two month span from like mid July to uh, mid September when they were hacked. And during that two months, 72,000 people had consultations and we estimated that that was $6.7 million. So we just don't even have the data between January and July. It could be tens of millions of dollars just for the phone consultations. Um, and then the, uh, the pharmacy, we have you know hundreds of thousands of uh, prescription records for prescriptions that they filled. And like the vast majority of them were for ivermectin, uh, hydroxychloroquine and other things related to these like you know quack cures for COVID, um, and all of the medicine related to to that uh, added up to eight point five million dollars for like that's how much the patients paid. Okay, and so how do they find these uh, America's so-called frontline doctors? Is it just a Google search of ivermectin that leads them there, or are other folks pushing them there? Oh, there's. They have like a huge social media following, and they also seem to have um, a lot of influence in churches, which is interesting. They uh, uh, we we found that they've been like kind of advertised. They have ads for them in various newsletters that like religious communities and churches sent out. And one that we found um, from a group called the Bridge Connection Ministries, it was like. Incredibly blatant. It's just like, have you been exposed to COVID by someone who was recently vaxxed? Contact America's frontline doctors for a phone consultation with an MD. Um, and so basically, like, they seem to be a pretty large part of the anti vax movement right now. Um, and they have hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. They have a very active Telegram group. Uh, and, and yeah, when, whenever. Whenever you look into ivermectin to cure COVID, they they come up. They're one of the main ways that people seem to be trying to acquire these drugs. Okay, um, well, it makes sense. I mean, if you're gonna scam people, going to right-wing churches would be your number one target. They'll believe anything. Uh, you could be like, yeah. this dog poo, if you smear it on your face, Jesus will love you and you'll cure coronavirus and cancer. An interesting thing actually about about this, because we have the patient records of like these 72,000 people who, who paid, um, we were able to look at their uh, like demographics. They have like their, their gender and their age and stuff. And like most of the people were in their 50s and 60s. And so I think that like, I don't know, this is maybe a very vulnerable group of people. Um, and you know, they're probably, I don't know. That that's just that seems to be maybe the target audience. Yeah, don't do that. You're gonna make me feel sympathy for them. I am a lib after all, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, when they're targeting older right wing, like like evangelical church going Americans, that is probably both the most vicious community in a sense because of how much 
they don't want others to have rights, right? Um, historically, minorities, women, you name it. Mm -hmm. But it's also, in a sense, the most vulnerable community um, because they'll believe almost anything. And so. Yeah. They're also a lot more likely to get hospitalized or die from COVID if they're not vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, okay. Let's let's talk about that. I mean, is there any way to? First of all, is it confirmed? Just to get this out of the way, we did a story on this too, but that it's now right wingers that are getting coronavirus at at much higher rates. Than, than left wing Democrats, independents, etc. Is that confirmed? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've seen some stories about this, and I I think I, I saw some stories saying that like in counties that went for Trump, the you know death rate is a lot higher than in counties that went for Biden and things like that. So it seems pretty confirmed, but um, yeah. Okay, I was wondering yeah. if you had more information on it, but the the, the data that uh, we we presented and that a lot of folks saw, and I think it might have been in the New York Times, but it's that's it, confirmed is that the counties that went heavily for Trump um, get COVID at a 4.7 times the rate of counties that went heavily for Biden, uh, and that's because they have vaccination rates that are far lower. So they wind up getting COVID at a higher rate, hospitalized at a higher rate, and then eventually die at 4.7 times the rate of the Biden counties. So in a sense, of course, Micah, we're trying to protect right-wing Republicans here because we don't want them to die. And and they keep telling us to F off, they're gonna go take their horse dewormer and be just fine. And meanwhile, the scamming community sees that as a target-rich environment. So. Let's talk about a little bit more about the scams. So, is this like is? Let me ask it this way: Is the medical community doing anything about this? Are are any of these people going to lose their license, or they're just allowed to say, "Well, I mean, look, I I told them it could be for worms, it could be for coronavirus. I made money, and that's is that kosher?" So. I have gotten so many emails since I published this story from doctors that um, have basically been like, "Can you tell me if uh, you know this specific person who works in my state who is an MD and is like a quack and is spreading all this misinformation and making things dangerous? Um, could you tell me if they're associated with America's Frontline Doctors?" And, and unfortunately, we don't actually have a list of doctors in the in the active data. But basically, like there are a lot of um, you know healthcare professionals and doctors. Who are kind of trying really hard to fight back, um, but so far it hasn't actually gotten anyone's uh, medical licenses revoked. And so, so the the groups that are in charge of doing that are um, uh, every state has like a medical board, and they all seem to be like really lagging and not dealing with any of these issues. Um, but there, but I know that people are definitely turning up the heat, and so. <laughs> Yeah, so far there's no consequences. Um, I'm hoping that will change. But Micah, if it does change though, or if, it, if they attempt to change it, the right wing is gonna raise bloody hell. They're gonna say the elites are now canceling doctors who disagree. And so could it be that those licensing boards are scared to death of, of right wingers and hence do not Stop quacks that might actually be killing people with their bad medical advice and prescriptions. Um, 
because they're just worried about Republicans. Yeah, I mean, that is that's certainly that's certainly a fear. <laughs> I mean, they would. There's no question. If a if a medical board said, "Hey, ivermectin is perfectly fine for tapeworm, but if you're prescribing it for coronavirus, you're that's malpractice. You're negligent. You're not a real doctor." And we're taking away your license because if people listen to you, they won't take real medicine for coronavirus, and people will die. That that medical yeah, board would be attacked with a fury that it knows no bounds, and their lives might be in danger. I mean, that's the country we live in, right? Yeah, it really is. Like people are religious fanatics about this, basically. Great. Um, take away a church's tax exemption. They're political organizations, and they're in the right wing evangelical ones are the most dangerous political organizations in the country, and especially to their own members. Um, all right, Michael Lee, thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing the story on the intercept. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you.